0: Hey, night owls. Welcome to the next episode of Isn't It Past Your Bedtime. I'm Rachel. And I'm Krista. This week, we are doing nonfiction, which is a category that I will say I'm not super great at doing. (laughs)
1: Uh, Oh, great. I don't know that I ever pick it on my own unless something like this or the library bingo. I think is the last time I read nonfiction.
0: Yes, absolutely. Like, I really like the challenge of listening or reading something different. So I absolutely appreciate that. But on my own accord, no, nonfiction is not my go-to. Anyways, (laughs) that's okay. We all listen or read things that we're not super into all the time anyway. But there's a lot of value in it, I feel like. I think that it's really important to do things that are outside of your comfort zone because you learn a lot. And I really did appreciate that this, uh, that with this nonfiction um, pick this time around because I don't think I've listened to nonfiction in, like, a year. Like, since our last nonfiction pick, like, I don't think I have by choice. And so... Yeah, I haven't either. And I learned a lot on my read. Or I really did. Like, I actually really enjoyed my nonfiction pick. So I hope you guys enjoy it too. Um, anyways, I did no harm by Henry Marsh. I guess it's technically Dr. Henry Marsh, but during the book he also goes by Mr. Marsh. So he's very casual about it. He doesn't care. No, no, he's just casual about it. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. He's British. So he's Mm. not like, excuse me, I got a degree. Uh, I have a doctorate. You're going to call me Dr. Ross Geller. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. So Um, I kind of picked this book by happenstance. I was literally just like scrolling through like my list on Audible that had Audible or Audible nonfiction (laughs) as the option. Oh my God, it's all Audible, duh. Um, Anyways, I was looking through the nonfiction ones that I had chosen to add to my wish list and this one kind of came up and I was like, sure, that sounds good. Like it's a doctor book. I'm for it. It's not something I would normally listen to. But I also find doctor stuff really interesting. Like, I like doctor shows. Yes, I know those are not real. But in general, I find, like, procedural stuff pretty interesting. So, um, yeah, I did Do No Harm by Dr. Henry Marsh. What I found really interesting about this book is he basically, like, starts this book with, like, we're surgeons, not gods. Oh. it was, like, which- a lot of times people treat their surgeons like they're God, yeah. you know? And he's like, but basically the whole point of this book is that like, we're normal humans who have to make decisions based on what we know, you know? And as someone who's dealt with the hospital a lot in the last like year of my life, I didn't really love that. <laughs> as like an <laughs> intro. I was like, no, no, you're God, you fix things but I also really like his perspective on this. Like he writes this book as a retired person and he's just like, these are my experiences. These are surgeries I've been through. Like this is the reality of the training that I had, of the experiences that I had, of the people I interacted with. And like, this is what it's really truly like to be someone who is charged with fixing someone's brain, You know, because he specifically is a neurosurgeon, which is like a whole other level of like articulate basically and so i really love that the narrator is him he just reads his book and he's like here are experiences that i've had here is what made me choose to be a surgeon like here are the things that i think that patients should ask their doctors you know um so i just i really appreciated like the very straightforward nature of this book like there were sections that I had to skip because they felt really personal and I didn't really love feeling that. Um, I will say that I did not finish this book as of this moment because at about hour two, he hits losing his mother and he talks about like what the surgery is like and what him and his siblings were feeling and experiencing. And I really Having lost my mother recently, did try to listen through that, but I noticed that I wasn't paying attention. Like my brain just like couldn't comprehend or handle it at the time. Um, but I did get through most of this book, and so I really appreciate how like forward and like upfront he is basically about like how it is to be a surgeon, how it impacts their lives as surgeons, and how they interact with their patients' lives. so. I will say upfront. I love that about this book so far. Not so the let's get into some specifics. Books. Because it's nonfiction, it's a lot harder to be chronological um, because they kind of jump around basically based on their experiences. But uh, here are some of the highlights from the book that I really appreciated and thought were particularly interesting and think that you should absolutely listen to this unless you have huge hospital phobia, then don't. Maybe don't. <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would be like the line like if you had a lot going on in your life maybe it wouldn't be great like I said I had to skip some of the sections but overall this was a really interesting interesting book um so one of the things that he talked about is that so do you know how when you're starting as a surgeon you have like a consulting surgeon I think I've seen
1: that on Grey's Anatomy.
0: Correct. Hospital, television, get that right. So like when you're starting and you want to be a surgeon, you have a consulting surgeon. You have a seasoned neurological surgeon who is in the room, who is explaining to you like what is going on, like how you should proceed, like telling you how the anatomy works and explaining to you what are like the most logical next steps basically. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most interesting things that I, I found in this book is that So when you're that consulting surgeon, you're in charge of the failures of those intern surgeons. That
1: makes sense. Like, I I know that
0: that's kind of a silly thing to glom onto, but like that really hit me because it's just like, that means that. Even if you have an inexperienced surgeon, which is something that I have been concerned about in my life, like, how do you deal when you're a patient who has a surgeon who you know has only done a few of these? Like, they have a consulting surgeon, and that surgeon is in charge of making sure. So, like, if a lawsuit came about, you would be in charge as a consulting surgeon. Like, that lawsuit wouldn't go to that intermediate surgeon. And so, as, like, a patient, I don't know. I felt like that was something that I found, like, really comforting, (laughs) Like there's a consulting surgeon in charge of that decision. Um, so there was one scenario because basically this entire book isn't very chronological. It's just like, here are different scenarios that I encountered as a surgeon and here's how I felt about it. And here's how I dealt with it. And so this one in particular just like happened to stick with me because as a consulting surgeon, Dr. Marsh felt that his interns were sufficient enough, right? He let them continue with the surgery, but as soon as the surgery started, he felt like something was going wrong, so he steps in, he scrubs in, he steps into the room, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, yeah, this is what we're doing, and he realizes that his intern didn't understand basic brain anatomy and did an incision at the wrong point and completely severed someone's nerve in their brain. Well, that's terrifying. They were paralyzed, right? Uh, I, like, like that. I know that that's like a rough way to start this and that's not necessarily how this book started but like the entire point of this thing is like your surgeons are human beings and yeah. that's like the biggest thing that I took away from this is like they're they're just humans who are doing their best to make decisions based on education that they have received and the people around them and like ask your surgeons questions like that is the number one thing I took away from this is like he would encounter patients who would ask him, what would you do if it was you? What would you do if it was your parent and you had to make this decision? What would you do if this was your child and you had to make this decision? And multiple times, so he's not an American surgeon, he's British. He said, that is the best question you can ask because I will tell you that like, based on me being a 60 year old, I wouldn't operate because my quality of life is going to be terrible for the next 20 years. But Mm -hmm. if you're 20, your odds are better. You know what I mean? And so I just, I really liked this book because while it was not chronological in any way, shape or form, I just really appreciated seeing all of the different perspectives um, just like from a surgeon's like beginning to end basically. And I get like when you've been doing surgery for 50 years and you've retired and now you write a book, like it's going to be hard to chronologically like talk about your experiences. And so like, that didn't really deter me from this book, honestly. Like I just took each chapter at face value. Like this is a particular experience that this surgeon had and it tied in with this other experience that he had, even if it wasn't chronological. So basically, because this is not chronological, I'm just going to hit on the points in this book that I felt like were particularly poignant. And then Mm -hmm. if you want to listen to this book, I highly encourage it because I felt like it was really informational, especially as someone who like lost a parent in the hospital recently. And like surgery was something that we had to face and like discuss as a family. And I think it's really interesting to hear the surgeon's perspective. Um, But the surgeon's graveyard. Is something else that I thought was particularly poignant because he talks about how he writes this book when he's, you know, retired. He's been doing surgery for 30, 40 years. Um, he talks about the surgeon's graveyard, how even if you've been doing it for 30 years and then you lose a patient, that doesn't change how much it shakes your confidence. Like you carry that with you. And then every single time you go into surgery, you see those patience that you've lost and that it didn't succeed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, I felt like that was actually really important for me as far as trusting a surgeon, because I think it is really important to not just be completely narcissistic and be like, oh, well it failed because of other reasons. Like, I think it's really important for a surgeon to be like, I made mistakes. Like I could have done something differently. Um, and I feel like that was part of what I, that was particularly challenging with this week's, like, nonfiction episode because I picked something medical. Like, there's kind of, like, there's a lot of that going on in our world these days. Yeah. And also, like, I've never really had, like, major surgery, but it's really interesting to hear him, like, from the get-go say, like, most people see their surgeons as gods. Okay. Basically, I felt like it was really important that this seasoned retired surgeon did still reflect on those failed cases and I think that that a lot of that like makes your surgeons feel more human because like he was saying is that like a lot of people do look at their surgeons like they're God who's gonna fix them and then they're upset when they don't and honestly like I think the entire point of his book was that like we are surgeons and we are trained to do these specific things but we're also human beings who make mistakes Mm -hmm. you know and I while that's not necessarily encouraging, like if you're going to go into surgery or you're going to have some major operation, like it's also realistic, you know, yeah. like there are doctors who have seen this a hundred times and maybe made a mistake when it was your turn. You know, there these are doctors who have had hours and hours and years of training and they still maybe don't do the right thing. Um, and while that doesn't really instill encouragement in our medical society, my mom has always said, that's why they say they're practicing medicine.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: They are doctors, but they're practicing medicine because everything that you do is like not necessarily set in stone. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it could change in a week and a year. Like you don't know like the later impacts that things are going to have. So I think that going into this book, that's basically the perspective that, Henry Marsh had is he was just like I'm a human being and I have made mistakes and sometimes I can justify them for legitimate reasons and sometimes I can't like there was one case in which he had a day where he had three surgeries right Mm -hmm. so this is closer to the beginning of the book two of the surgeries were amazing successes one of them they didn't even expect would succeed Like they didn't think that this was gonna be successful. I'm pretty sure the woman was like losing her eyesight or had a brain bleed or something, and they were able to fix it. And they were amazed because it was a miracle that she could see and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But in the same day, he lost a patient unexpectedly, you know, to something that seemed very straightforward. And, I don't know, I just I felt like this entire book. Like I just like really felt for the surgeon, like that kind of journey that you have to take every single day, even when it's something that you know is very straightforward. There was one case where he knew it was gonna be a very straightforward aneurysm. He's like, We're gonna deal with the blood, it's gonna be fine. I learned a lot about the brain during this show, by the way. It's <laughs> in show book, it's basically a show. I listened to it. Um, by the way, uh <laughs> um. But like they thought it was going to be super straightforward. They weren't expecting any issues. And all of a sudden, so when you're doing brain surgery, you're using like this tiny little uh, magnifying glass, right? And you're looking at like half of an inch, but in a magnifying glass. So it seems huge. Mm -hmm. And he was doing a brain surgery with something he thought was very simple and not going to be a problem. And there's a brain bleed. Like, just there was so much blood. This man lost more than a quarter of the blood in his body
1: before they could stop it from his
0: brain, before they could stop it and figure out what happened. He ended up being fine, actually. They ended up being able to save him. He was okay. They didn't even mention the brain bleed in in post op because they were like, it's not relevant. Like, it was unfortunate, but it wasn't relevant because he's okay. Yeah. Wow. And so I think it's really interesting. Like the things that your surgeons do and don't tell you based on how it turned out, you Mm -hmm. know, like you really don't know what's going to go on. Um, He also talked a lot about how like meeting your patients beforehand, like, so a lot of surgeons don't talk to their patients the day of surgery and patients get irritated with this, right? It's like bad juju or something. It's an anxiety issue. Yeah. So a patient's anxiety or a patient's confidence alternatively can really impact, sorry, I heard her barking. I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> can really impact like your surgeon's ability to operate functionally.
1: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Which
0: makes sense, you know. But yeah, basically he was saying that like your patient's confidence or anxiety the day of the surgery can really impact how your surgeon performs which makes sense because they're just human beings who are trying to make decisions based on education that they've received in the past. Yeah.
1: Like you ever it been almost, like super stressed out about somebody else in your workspace and now you're trying to
0: like do a thing. Right. Exactly. Well, it's our brains. Exactly. So like, I don't know. I just, I feel like there was just so much of this that I found really interesting. Um, the next point that he made that I found particularly interesting was to operate or not to operate. Like, younger surgeons who are gung-ho want to operate no matter what. Yeah. They want the Even if it's hopeless. It. Right. But he 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 talked about how he would speak to, like, classes of younger surgeons once he became a consultant. And he would be like, but why wouldn't we want to operate? You know, he would, like, push them to ask those questions. Like, what are the reasons we wouldn't want to operate? Because for him, he said that, like, as you become older, you start to be able to, like, you see some of that follow-up. You see what happens with the quality of life of your patients Mm. when you operate, when it's a hopeless case. Mm. Like, and also within that is how you word it to their family when their family has to make the decision to operate if somebody is not conscious. You know? Like, do you say it like, we can operate and we can save them and they will live? Or do you say, we can operate but there's no guarantee or very small chance of them having a functional independent life. Yeah. You know or I mean? Like those are very operate, different. This
1: is what will change.
0: Correct. Versus we will operate and save them from dying. So like he spends a lot of time talking about how he addresses his students and like, I think that's really important too, like I think bedside manner as a surgeon is particularly important because I see what he means. Like you don't want to operate on somebody who you know is going to survive in the end, but you also know they're going to be a vegetable. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, like there were patients that he had. Um, He also talks a lot about how like that patient attachment relationship works because as you get older, you get better at like not necessarily like emotionally attaching to your patients. And then he talks about an instance where there was this one younger woman who had a recurring brain tumor and she, every time the brain tumor came back, he would operate and he would take it out. Right. And after about the third time, she ended up at a different hospital because she had moved or something. And they were like, well, we don't really want, we don't want to operate. Like there's no, there's no point you know, it's going to come back within weeks, which means that the weeks that you do have to live, if we can get it to go away, are going to be recuperating, you know, like it's a quality of life issue at that point. Like there is a certain point with certain cancers that like your family needs to decide, like, is this worth it? Like, do you want this? And this girl was unconscious and her family calls Dr. Marsh and is like, everyone else has refused to operate. Will you take her tumor out? you know? And as a surgeon, you're like, Oh my God, like I feel attached to this family. Cause he's done, I think at this point he'd done like two or three operations for her before. So he's very familiar. Like it's been decades coming and he knows though, that the family is not going to accept that there's nothing else you can do, you know? So he talks to the family and he's like, maybe it'll prolong her life a couple months. Maybe. And they're like, we don't care. She says she's not ready. We'll prolong in a couple of months, you know? And I get that as a family member, all you know, is that when they're conscious, they say that no matter the cost, they want to live for two more months. And I totally understand that. Cause I'm sure I would feel the same way, like buy me two months. I don't care if I'm dealing with a head wound, you know, like buy me two months. And, um, so I think that that was really interesting to see him as a surgeon on the surgeon side versus the patient side where your family is just struggling with the grief like how you deal with that and how you make those decisions and like even after he operated on this girl for like the fourth time or whatever he was like I didn't feel like that was the right choice he's like I didn't want to do that but I also knew that at this point I was so emotionally attached to her and her family that I didn't want to let them down you know and like he even got to the point where her brain was so swollen he had to remove a section of the front of her skull to allow it to swell to swell up yeah and so a lot of times though, when that happens, you're going to get an infection right there because it's not covered. It's not protected. It's not clean. You're going to get an infection. You're going to die slowly and painfully. And I just, I don't know. I think that it takes a lot out of a human being to make that kind of career decision. So like, wow, that sucks as a patient to have to hear those things. Like it's still reality. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's gonna happen either way. And I think it's definitely more important to have a surgeon who knows there are implications to the actions that they're taking than to have a surgeon who just, like, wants to operate to be like, I did the thing. Yeah, Uh, I told that that tumor gone. Look at me, I'm amazing. Exactly. So, like, Dr. Marsh. Right, exactly like that. And so I, I felt like that was really realistic of him, of being like, I took responsibility for the things that I did incorrectly. Like, there was one case he got sued over, And it was because, what was it? Um, Oh, right. He had done an operation on someone. And uh, the husband called a few weeks later and was like, I think it's infected. Like there's some weird swelling. And so this whole thing is over the phone. Over the phone, the husband tells him that there's some swelling or whatever. Doctor is like, it's fine. This is totally normal. I've never seen a complication with this surgery in my life. I've been doing this for 30 years, right? she died of infection and the doctor was like, I was busy. It was over the phone consult based on the information I was given. I assumed based on prior experience that it was probably fine. And they were just being overly concerned, you know? And so they, they went into court knowing that they were going to lose because his only defense was I was distracted and busy and they didn't bring her in, you know? Like that's not a defense, and it's not. and I, I feel like it's it's really interesting to see surgeons as like human beings. Like he did talk a little bit about losing his own parents. like I said, he talked about losing his mom in about hour two and a half, which is too much for me, so I did not continue at that point. Um, but he the reason he became a surgeon was because he lost his dad to Alzheimer's, and when they showed the brain scan, his dad's brain was like Swiss cheese because of how much Alzheimer's had taken from him, right? Um, But uh, overall, I really enjoyed this book, because he talks about, like, how surgeons should be approaching patients, like, how they should be having these tough conversations, like, the way that surgeons make these decisions, like, some of the ways that surgeons deal with the decisions they've had to make, and I think, basically, for anybody who's, like, particularly lost somebody to surgery i think that this would be really an interesting perspective to hear um so yeah he was a he was a british doctor he did work with uh ukraine at some point because apparently ukraine's neurosurgery was so bad that they told them that some surgeries weren't possible yeah so he ended up yeah so he ended up performing a bunch of surgeries that Ukraine patients were told were not possible. Like um, I think that he has had probably a pretty big impact on the neurosurgical field. He talked about having um, residents come from UW Seattle, actually. Oh, wow. All the way to him to be underneath him and how he helped Ukraine kind of surface that there were issues with their neurosurgical procedures and how they weren't efficient um so i really appreciated this book because i felt like it was a very human perspective yeah from a surgeon like i feel like he was like i was retired this i don't have anything to lose at this point like this is what it's truly like to be a surgeon like he he went into being a surgeon because he felt like he could help people especially after losing his dad he ended up like having to get divorced because he spent all of his time doing surgery and not being with his his wife and Mm -hmm. so I don't know. I just felt like it was a, it was like a less dramatized, but much more real version of Grey's Anatomy. All right. How many like, scalpel? How many skulls? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think four or five, four and a half. Let's go with four and a half because okay. it, it was really good. I thought it was really interesting and very real and very grounded. And uh, stuff I don't think I would have necessarily thought of from the surgeon's perspective, being somebody who's not a surgeon and someone who's dealt with the patient side. Yeah. All right. So well, I felt like it was really interesting pick for, for nonfiction. I also
1: picked kind of a science based nonfiction, unknowingly. Ooh. So we have a theme that we didn't even know about. Yes. So I did The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot is how I think you say her last name. Um, Okay. So how that one starts is that it starts with, there's like a foreword or a preface or whatever by Rebecca, basically telling you about why she's writing this book. And it started because she, she was in high school and apparently she like wasn't great at school or something. So she ended up in this like other school that allowed her to take college credits, which I didn't really follow, but it doesn't really matter. Either way, she ended up in this biology class And her professor was like, blah, 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 biology, science stuff. And you're like, cool, whatever. And then he started talking about these HeLa cells. And he wrote up on the board. He was like, Henrietta Lacks. He's like, there are these HeLa cells. And you can go. And at this point, it was probably like the late 90s, 80s, maybe early 90s, somewhere in there. And he's like, you can go into any lab in the world. And he's like, and I will guarantee he's like, I will bet you money that you're gonna find Gila cells there. And he was like, they came from this woman, Henrietta Lacks. But so that's all he says. Then he goes and he erases her name off the blackboard. And Rebecca is like, who is Henrietta? Like, why do we have these cells? And so basically, so she starts at like 16. She basically becomes obsessed with this woman, Henrietta, and she wants to know about it. And so she starts doing way better in school. She actually starts like applying herself she goes to college, she goes to, I think grad school, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. It's impressive though. Because she knows that she wants to write a book about Henrietta's life, like she knows this, and so the book ends up kind of jumping back and forth between like um, Henrietta's life before she passes away and her life after when Rebecca is writing this book. So what cells are is, and I don't, so also, by the way, I'm gonna jump all over the place telling this non-fictions
0: are not chronological it's okay
1: yeah so that's already hard and then it's just it goes everywhere so HeLa cells are the first immortal cells that like anybody ever made or had or found or whatever so basically what it is is that every 24 hours these cells completely replicate themselves um like 100% fully replicate and so I mean, at the time, so this was in, like, 19, what, it it probably would have been, like, 1940s or something like that, I think, is roughly around the time that they got these cells, and that was unheard of. Like, scientists were starting to kind of try and figure out science, and they're trying to cure cancer and trying to cure all of these things, but they had no way to do it because every cell that they got died, and then they ended up with these HeLa cells, and how they got named HeLa is that back then, HIPAA wasn't a thing so they were like weren't out of these privacy practices that said that like you can't you need to like take all of my medical information and make sure it can't be brought back to me and so anything that was all, all the cells that were taken from people got the first two initials of the first name and first two initials of the last name and so kind of how they came to be is that so Henrietta was this black woman it's like 1940. She works on a tobacco farm. She's married to her first cousin. At this point, she has oh. three or four kids or something like that. Okay. And she finally tells her, she tells her cousins at one point, or her sisters, or not sisters, cousins, friends, um, that it feels like there's a knot inside of her, like in her stomach. There is this knot, okay. is how she explains it. And she's like, something is wrong with me. So Henrietta. Uh, she finally tells her husband, Day, who, um, and, like, the book kind of talks about their, like, life before they get married and before they have kids and everything like this. It's a
0: tumor. It's a tumor,
1: isn't it? It's a tumor, yeah. So she ends up having cervical cancer. Oh, God. So her husband takes her to John Hopkins, which at the time is, like, the nearest hospital because they live in where John Hopkins is, close by. I don't remember. It doesn't really matter um it's the only place that will do any kind of medicine for black people for free they have because at this point like segregation like so she was born free she was born uh two years after um you know slavery ended but she but still segregation is super big and so they're the only place that are gonna do it so that's so that's the thing is like if you go to john hopkins that's because you're not doing good you're not doing well anymore so she goes there and the doctors um at first they're like i don't know there's not really anything wrong with you but then they put her uh, in the stirrups and they look and they're like yeah that's a big old tumor on your cervix but at this time it was common practice for doctors not to tell you what was wrong with you because they didn't want to scare or confuse you with words like cancer and so they the doctors went because also in the background of this there is this biologist guy named George Guy and his wife and I his wife basically like made all this happen because she had a background in like sanitizing and stuff and so she could like make sure that all these practices weren't cross-contaminating um but he was trying to collect any kind of cells he could possibly get his hands on and back then and spoiler still today uh once the cells are out of you, you don't get a say with what happens to you. You don't even necessarily get a say with, like, them taking them from you. But So they take her cells. They, like, saw off or cut off some cells from her tumor. Because George Guy has been trying to – he wants to make immortal cells. He, like, has it in his brain. He's like, it's going to happen. Like, there's going to be somebody. So he, like, put out ads and was like, literally any cells that you can get, I want them. Um, And so – you know Henrietta goes and they're like okay we're gonna do this like it'll be fine because at the time they knew this is why i'm jumping everywhere so at the time they knew cervical cancer was a thing but it was split into these like two categories there was like real real bad invasive is gonna kill you and take over everything and then like we'll turn into a tumor but we can chop it out of you and so they weren't super worried they thought it was like the more lesser one and they're like just cut it out Yeah, they're like, we'll call you once we get results, it's fine. But there was this other doctor who had this whole thing where he was like, no, I'm pretty sure like the lesser one is just the really bad one, but early on, but everybody literally laughed him out of conferences. He turns out he's right later on in life. Um, But either way, her cells end up to Dr. George Guy, and they like, his like assistant or whatever is like eating lunch and he so with his wife they were like okay cross-contamination and so he built these whole systems that like sucked at all the air and like, everything was like it was very with the time like he knew shit well before he should have um and then but the assistant like does the whole culture thing like she's supposed to and she's like okay these ones are just gonna die because every other cell has died and then they live like the next day they're there And she's like, Hmm. whatever, some have lived a couple days before, and then they die. But then it keeps happening, and they're still alive, and they're still alive, and they're still replicating. And so finally, they figure out that, like, okay, these are basically, they replicate, given like, the right home to live in, they will replicate for forever and always. And so he starts selling them off to anybody who's doing studies for anything. Like, oh you want to study this here you go have these cells have these cells and at first it was like hand delivered and then ultimately later on he figures out how to mail them and he's basically giving them away for free. mail them oh my god oh yeah they're mailing cells to people and stuff and only like they, no they, they did like they did like a study they like or like a test of like a hundred and only like one of them died and they figured out why they're like oh well we this part got messed up in the mailing this was like probably back when you could still mail children and stuff too though so <laughs> but so while oh this God. is going on and her cells are you know just replicating forever henrietta has no idea that this is happening like nobody told her anything like one she is a patient and they don't tell patient things and then two she's a black Never. woman and they're oh, definitely no. not gonna like like they're like we can just tell her we can do whatever we want um and so she gets a call and they're like hey yeah it's cancer and it's bad you need to come back but she doesn't want to tell anybody because she doesn't want to worry anyone And so she ends up getting radium treatment, where they take, like, little balls of radium and we're like, sewing them to the cervix. And hoping that would help? It did. Who did this? For, like, a couple Uh. months. Like, six-ish months, I think, maybe. I don't remember exactly. It's gross. But either way, it helped. And then, of course, it came back. And so then they're like, okay, well, you need radiation. And so she finally confides in, like, two of her cousins, because, like, she has to go get these radiation treatments, like, every single week and so, like, her husband works nights, and so he can drop her off, but to be able to pick her up, she has to, like, walk over to her cousin's house, and so she finally has to, like, tell some more people that she's sick, but she is, like, you know, she's, she'll bring in anybody, like, any cousin shows up hungry, she makes some dinner, you need a place to sleep, you can sleep on the couch, the floor, whatever, like, she's that kind of person, so she doesn't want to worry people, people, right, Um, and so she's doing this, so she's getting these radiations, and, like, her skin is literally just turning, like, charred black, at this point Um, oh no and when she finally passes away a doctor tries to convince her husband day to do an autopsy because guy has been wanting more cells because he wants to do studies on her and stuff and at first he's like no i'm not gonna do it and then he gets talked to and he's like okay but i want to be i want to be presentable for an open casket so it kind of limited what they could do but when they do the autopsy she literally has like pearl colored size big pearl size tumors everywhere they're covering her heart they're covering her lungs they're covering her surface. so By is the time this she... like
0: a, a real story of attempting to figure out how radiation therapy worked
1: no so they kind of knew how radiation worked they weren't they kind of had figured that out a little bit this is mm-hmm. more just like um how do like like these cells so she's the first cells that ever like her That's cancer impact, cells yeah. replicated forever so people were using it to figure out how like mm-hmm. i mean they yeah they like they sent her cells up into space to figure out how did like space travel affect them and turns out it's really bad and it makes them because they're all cancer cells so it makes them like replicate super duper fast Um, how do x-ray treatments like how does that affect it so basically almost everything that we we know from science is because of her cells like they test new cancer drugs as far as cancer goes not even as cancer, like polio, the polio vaccine was basically figured out because of her cells. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so she, um, so she was like coming, going back and forth. She's getting all these radiation treatments. Um, She ends up, she ends up dying from um, like the, I can't remember the name of it, but basically at the end is that the tumors were stopping her urethra and so they couldn't even get a catheter up anymore. And so all the toxins that your body normally expels oh. through urine were building up in her. So that was the one that finally killed her. Couldn't do it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when she Ooh, passed, so she rough. while this was all happening, um, she had been, got pregnant with her youngest son. So she ends up having five kids. Um, and then, so at this she point. She has a kid while this is happening? That's insane. Yeah. So like the early one, like the early kind of radium like helped. And then she was able to have her son joe um doesn't go by joe and i feel really bad because i can't remember what name he prefers to go by right now but um so anyways so then the book kind of like picks up with rebecca's story and where she starts trying to write it so she like reaches out today the husband and then deborah is so uh, henrietta had two daughters her second or her first daughter which i believe was her second child um, so since her and Day are first cousins, and then she also had syphilis, is that her daughter is born with all kinds of problems, which back then they just Oof. called, she was um, deaf and dumb. And so she ends up in a home. Like when, Wow, classy. Yeah, when Henrietta got sick, she could not care for her anymore. Uh, she finally got talked into putting her into her in a home, which is where she ends up, she ended up passing away at like 15, just basically. They usually of, do in those homes. Yeah. And also, like, way later in the book, you find out that, like, there was no funding for this home, because it was, like, the hospital for the Negro insane or something like that, and there's no funding at all. Um, and so, like, she died from, like, nowadays, like, she could have been pulled. Nobody knew that she was there. That's the other thing, is that none of the other kids knew that she was there. Um, and so Deborah, who is the second daughter and the second youngest, was like, if I had known that my sister was there, I would have gone and got her, but nobody told me I had a sister who was there. Like, she didn't know she had a sister until she was probably like thirty or forty. And at this point, wow, you know, people are like like people are reaching out. So when Rebecca calls Deborah for the first time, Deborah is like, Oh yeah, you're a white woman, obviously. And she's like, Well, how do you know? And she's like, I found out later that the only reason she knew was because only white people are calling, asking about this. Um, and so at this point they're also like the whole family is just exhausted. Like they're so tired from doing all of these interviews. Like um, so, the kind of the rest of the story, unless we until we jump back until Henrietta's part, because mm. uh, the book came out in 09, and so Deborah is in her early 50s, Day is in his 80s, and like all the other brothers and cousins are like they're all these folks are like definitely older, right? But Deborah wants to know, like, Deborah has like really bad anxiety, and she gets hives, and she has high blood pressure, and um, she ends up like giving herself basically a stroke because she gets so worked up about this because she doesn't understand and nobody has taken the time to explain the science to her they she just so she like will read a thing like she learned about the internet like rebecca teaches of the internet and she found a thing about how they were cloning her in london like they're cloning her mom in london and so she's sitting there thinking that like there's actually her mom is being cloned but really it's the cells were cloned and you know they're doing all these studies for all of these diseases, and she's just sitting there thinking, Oh my gosh, my mom is uh, suffering with all of these diseases, but it's her cells because nobody took the time to explain it to her. And then they also touch on um, this other place, I think it's a like Tushi or something like that. But basically, they um, paid black men to give them syphilis so they could study what happened to syphilis and then let them just die because they wanted to know what the natural course of syphilis was. And so they injected them with it and then just watched them die slow, painful deaths. Gosh. And so, so she's like, so Deborah knows about this. Cause that became like knowledge after like later. So she knows in her older years that, and so she's like, well, gosh, like, cause she's still struggling. Like how, like, what is this that my mom is living immortal lives? Cause all doctors are telling her or telling the whole family really at this point is that like, Oh my gosh, your mom is like so important to science and we're discovering all these things and polio. And then at one point they're like, okay, well, so she's doing all these amazing things for science how come we have no money? How come we can't afford health insurance? And that's kind of where also the book kicks into like still this current one of like, no, you don't get, we still to this day do not get to save what help in, happens to ourselves after they leave their bo- our body. Like when yeah, they're in okay. our body, it's like, we're, we're pretty good. We can be like, no, you can't take that from me. But as soon as it's gone, like probably almost every form we sign at the doctor's office has
0: some line in it about like once it leaves its body it's not ours they can do whatever they the can help do whatever want. What want yeah i definitely think that's like an argument against like organ donation like yeah well and then like the other one too that they touch on like way later in the book
1: is like ancestry and this 23 and me, where like they want it like they have our dna they can do these studies on us but like i don't have it it's not my dna anymore how can i tell them no um and so And kind of jumps off and so like I said the book jumps everywhere and I don't really want to one it's a lot of science it's a very science heavy and so even if I tried I could not explain everything that happens in this book I highly recommend if at all you're interested in like what one like black families like went through like with their like health and their doctors and stuff like that listen to it if you want to know like what we did before HIPAA before like like because also back then there was there was nothing for informed consent yeah so like after kind of all this started happening and people were realizing because that was the other thing is that so there's this guy who had his spleen removed because he had he had like spleen cancer or something so like your spleen is normally supposed to be like one and a half pounds and when they removed his it was 22 pounds and so they took it and they started doing all these studies and he found out and he was in a position where he could afford a lawyer to sue and say hey Like, I didn't say you could do that with my spleen. Like, what the heck? Um, And that's kind of where, like, informed consent comes on of, like, okay, so your doctor has to tell you what they're going to do, and they have to make sure that they tell you in a way that you understand. Like, that's what informed consent. Before this, it was just, it was kind of how you were saying. Well, doctors are gods, you know, they're doctors. They fix us. So, like. Just trust them. They just do the thing yeah, a doctor said I was fine, I'm fine, I'm gonna die in three days, but the doctor said I'm fine, it's cool, so, um, yeah, and so, like, a lot of things end up coming out, like, one, like, the HeLa cells, like, still today, I mean, this was 2009, and I'm pretty sure it's still true in 2020, are everywhere, at one point, though, they do find out that they're contaminating all of these other cells, so all these studies that they've done, can't, they have to, like, redo them, because, like, ipsy-daisy, nobody knew about, like, cross-contamination or anything, so I found that kind of funny, um, but yeah, basically it like brought like all this stuff because the other one, the big one, was like HIPAA. Is that like okay? So like, what happens when you say a pay- tell a patient, yeah, like you are you're right, you are in control of yourselves. Well, how do we pay you? Is it gonna be like a musician where every time their song's played on the radio they get paid royalties? Right. Or are we gonna give you a lump sum? Or no, what like happens that. now when employers or insurance companies find out about these genetic markers that I have can they discriminate against me and so that's kind of where like, the, the answer whole- is yes yes and so <clears throat> that was a big worry with people that they were having and so that's also kind of where like HIPAA comes in and so it changed mm. a lot of things um, but honestly just like listening to like what like Henrietta went through with all of this and like mm. multiple times it'll be like Rebecca so, like, she didn't narrate it, there's two narrators, there was, like, the main, there was the main narrator who was, like, the Rebecca character, and then there was another narrator who was, like, if Deborah was speaking or anyone from them, because, like, I think Deborah stopped her education at, like, I think at 10th grade she got pregnant, or 9th grade, Um, Henrietta stopped her education at, like, 6th grade, and so anytime that there was any character that had, um, that struggle to formulate a sentence how we would based off of schooling just because they lacked the schooling um anything Sense. like that there was there was a second narrator which actually kind of really helped for when they were having conversations to keep them straight on who was saying what mm. so I actually appreciated it. I didn't notice it until way later in the book because I started with reading the book um and then uh my library pick finally came up for the audible version or the audio version not the audible because it's from the library um. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I Sounds don't really like a really interesting that, book. But yeah, it was. I mean, it's I learned a lot about like the science. And I think how it's like, definitely
0: definitely interesting to think about, like yeah, like how your body is used for science later, because like my dad has MS, mm-hmm. and he has historically refused to allow them to use his body for science purposes. Yeah, but if you but I hadn't really thought mind. about like once it leaves your body what are they doing with it like I hadn't thought about that particular perspective I just thought about like you could help other people you know what I mean like mm-hmm. I didn't really think about like the other implications that that could have so I think that's yeah. really interesting
1: like and I mean even now like there are they, like the book was saying at least so in 2009 when the book came out that like yeah like they're still scraping like tumors or cells or whatever it is and people are still taking them and they are still doing studies and they don't have to tell us because, so the guy that I was talking about it who had, um, who applied or who not applied, oh my gosh, who sued over his spleen and all these studies, because that's the other thing mm-hmm. is that like people are making millions of dollars off these HeLa cells because it started oh, with yeah. George guy and it was basically, he was giving them away for free. But then a company figured out that they could just like, it was literally just like this guy who got out of the military and started working at some job and then was like, huh. I mean, I could probably just do all of this and just make a lot of huh. money. So he like brought people in and was like, teach me how to sterilize, teach me how to do this. And he just like made a bajillion dollars. No. And so the guy who I was talking about, and I really wish I could remember his name. Oh, I think it's maybe it's so I don't know that his what his name is, but I think his cells were either like he he or ho ho or hi hi. It was like an H in a vowel oh, that and does. that was his first name and then his last name was an H and a vowel so it was mm-hmm. a repetitive one. Somebody along those lines got it. Yeah, um, and so, yeah, so like I said, he sued, because, like, they took his spleen, and they did all these studies, and they learned a ton of stuff from his spleen, which is awesome, but then he was like, you get credit I for that. I don't say you could do that, and you guys are making millions, um, and at first, they were like, no, we're not going to give you anything, and then he appealed, and he ended up winning, but he only won on that the doctor never gave him informed consent. The doctor never told him, mm-hmm. we're gonna take it It'll and we're gonna do stuff with it. And so, but then that opened up this whole thing because scientists were like, oh my gosh, well, if Interesting. we say that, like, if we have to explain to patients, but, like, we wanna take their cells to learn about them, they're gonna withhold this life saving treatment because they want more money. And it's like, well, probably not, Rob. But also, this is like, the 70s 80s who fucking knows I feel like a
0: lot of it's not money issues but more like I don't understand what it is you're going to be doing with parts of my body you know what I mean so that's like I honestly feel like most of it's just an information
1: issue and that's where the court's kind of settled is that um it's informed, informed consent and even then literally the informed consent to this day basically is that there's like a line in all these doctor forms that you're signing saying that your cells could be sent off and could be used for this thing
0: I've noticed Um, that it says like you could be used for other purposes once your cells have left your body (laughs) like it says that specifically
1: yeah and you're like I just came here for a generic
0: doctor test okay cool
1: um but yeah so that was kind of what the um the guy with the spleen that's kind of where his landed it wasn't like like he didn't come out super ahead and like the lax family so they finally got the recognition because before like at one point it was leaked that her name was like Helen and like it constantly that changed what her name was and the doctors Mm. were like constantly fought back and were like no you can't give her real name that's bad but it wasn't because of like caring about the family it was because they were worried that like they they kind of knew in the back of their minds that they did something a little sketch Mm,
0: imagine it's people are cautious when they know that they've been sketchy
1: yeah and so I didn't
0: actually finish the book I made it partway through the afterword of the book I'm glad neither of us have yeah, I but was doing it you really made good. the afterword. That's really good. Like the afterword, the book is over.
1: The afterword was just one bajillion percent science. And I, it was kind of like, I just stopped listening and I just.
0: I, I don't like, count hey. the afterword as part of the book. So you finish the book because I don't count the afterword. I think if you listen to the afterword, it's a bonus, but it's not part of the book. I started it to see if it had anything to do with the story. Cause I kind of wanted to know if there was going to be like an update on
1: where the lacks were now, but they give you an update that's on it. where the lacks are now at the end of the book which is mm. basically that like uh her great grandchildren or cousins or something some of them finally graduated college and a lot of them are actually going and learning science like as they're like post cool. or postgraduate stuff because of Henrietta which is kind of really cool um but either way totally recommend it I'd probably give it like four out of five the story was really good there's a lot of science which is kind of okay. Hard to follow. Also, I listened to it. I think if I read Science it, I would like it would lock in more, but I ended up listening to it at like Did one you? and okay. a half speed. But yeah, for a not for a nonfiction, I almost said not for profit. Oh my lord, I'm losing it. Um as a it? non-fiction. <laughs> I would definitely recommend it because it kind of like just gives you more insight on okay. what is happening to your body when you go to a doctor. Not what happens to your body, but what happens to your cells and all these samples that they take from us and like cool. what our rights
0: are so i feel like we both picked some solid non-fictions this time I think coincidentally both picked like something medical i know but yeah because uh, we did not coordinate no, until that after we picked. I was not planned at all just happened um. to work out but it's definitely interesting that's stuff i never would have really thought about or known and so that's like something i really appreciate about non-fiction like i know it's not something i necessarily pick like for, for my own entertainment but I like that we challenge ourselves with these. yes I think we could keep doing it like
1: once a year you know yeah for at out.
0: least it's yeah. good to try something new okay exactly. I like learning real facts that are not from like late night television exactly specific. but
1: speaking of learning something new because we're not going to on our next one our next episode we are doing the end of the world end of the world picks I have so many
0: I cannot wait to pick one
1: I've already started mine because I love I'm it ready. And it's a trilogy, and I cannot wait. So you're gonna have to text me later and tell me what it is, because mine's a trilogy too. So I'm gonna oh no. die if we have the same one. Oh my gosh, am I crying? Maybe I'll just do the second. Oh my one. goodness. Um, you, if you have any nonfiction books that you think we just need to read, sciencey or not, please you, tell me. Yeah, we want to add them to our list, because maybe we'll just branch out a little more, anyways, and not just because do it. the podcast made us. But we are on Gmail if it's a nice long list at isn't it past your bedtime at gmail.com. You can reach out on Instagram, isn't it pasture bedtime, and then
0: Twitter is the only different one, I I P Y B underscore pod. You can also check out our website that has a list of all of the things that we've listened to previously and a sneak preview into what's happening next at isn't it past your Yeah. I think that's
1: and- it. It is. Uh, rate, That's review, subscribe us. if you guys like it, you know, tell your friends, all that good stuff. That's how we get other people. Oh my goodness gracious, I just dropped Don't something. drop things. Um, I'm just gonna pick it up. We will talk at all y'all in a fortnight. Bye. Bye.